2: Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea leonard an editor here at the TLS, and I'm with Lucy Dallas, our arts editor. Hello, Lucy. Hello, how are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. I would like to be distracted with news of your reading.
3: Well, uh, I can um, confidently announce that with my, I have done some of my lockdown project. Excellent. How often do you hear that happen? <laughs> <laughs> I certainly didn't do any the first time. Um, and on your prompting, Thea, I have read the first of the Cazalet. Chronicle. Have you finished it? Yeah, because I read it really fast because it's I hard really to stop. enjoyed it. It was really hard to stop. Yeah, she's. It's yeah. just
2: the. I think the way that she writes children's dialogue is just something else.
3: Yeah, this is. I didn't know much about her. Elizabeth Jane Howard for the, the. The must be an absolute tiny number of people who don't know exactly what we're talking about. Who <laughs> <One Yeah>. faithful <laughs> followers. Um, um, for uh, we were wondering what to read during the second lockdown. And Thea recommended that I read the Casale Chronicles. By Elizabeth It's been
2: a, a project about three years
3: in the making. Yes. And finally, <laughs> finally, I said, OK. Uh, and I absolutely loved it. Yeah. And the children's because she she has this wonderful. It makes perfect sense that Hilary Mantel thinks she's terrific and, you know, sings her praises and stuff mm-hmm. because she's got this kind of indirect narrative that slips into the head of this mm. person and as they're thinking about something that then it slips into the head of the next person and it goes around every character in the book i think i mean i think yeah. probably you get the thoughts of everyone don't you
2: yeah and certainly and then in the subsequent um novels because it's it's one of five um different characters obviously kind of come to the fore and others recede uh, yeah. as they age or, or as things happen in their lives uh the next one is uh, have you ordered it yet or i haven't ordered it yet i'm going to but i
3: did i did also order the light years because that's apparently brilliant but that's not a casalet one so i will have to get the next one
2: my head is still spinning from last week's books of the year show i had i ended up with so many books to order did you get I any sort of, of them? well i've sort of lost track of what they are i've ordered loads so it'll
3: be a pleasant surprise when they
2: when they drop through onto the doormat i'll have forgotten that i that I even I ordered have- them
3: I ordered that the, that one to Calais in ordinary time because it just sounded oh, James so Meek. terrific. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
2: I know. I ordered "Kiss Myself Goodbye," uh, "The Many Lives of Aunt Munker, which was one of yours, I think, by Ferdinand Mount.
3: Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, that, that's well. That's the one I'd like to borrow.
2: Oh, I thought you had read it. Okay, well, I'm no, very I much haven't. Looking forward no, to that.
3: afraid not. No, no, no.
2: And I think I was going to post you one. I was either, I was going to, was I going to post you Caleb Femi's poetry collection, or was it the second volume of the Casale Chronicles? I mean, you couldn't both. really ask for I'd two like, more, I'd two like more both. different books there. The one set on in this state in South London now, and the other set mostly in a Sussex country Actually, home during the Second World War.
3: I heard Caleb Femi talking on the other day uh, oh, on the radio. Yeah, he sounded, he just sounded terrific. So thoughtful and, um, sort of reflective and engaged mm. and yeah, it sounded it, he sounded really terrific. I'll pop um, that when I was, post you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um but yeah it just struck me with the Hillary Mantel thing, that, that narrative that drifts around that's completely mm. convincing. I mean with when, when Hilary Mantel does it with um, with Cromwell, it, it's basically him. Mm. You know, it's basically his consciousness that you get most of the time. And and one of the brilliant things about this is that it, it moves around. And as you say, she does the children. She doesn't it's not she doesn't do it in childish language. The language no. is, kind of remains the same, but she gets the thing But whereby they think about something really serious and then they think, oh, God, I hope it's not custard for tea or whatever it is, you know. Or, yeah, I, I the kind of the
2: simultaneity of thought and, and the rhythm of it as well.
3: Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that some things when you're a child seem incredibly serious um and and in fact, you know an adult may think they weren't and other things that are incredibly serious, you might be able to just sort of dismiss um and and she takes everyone seriously as well, everyone's included um as as you say the children and the servants I'm pretty sure you even get a bit of the cat's viewpoint at one point
2: I think you do, yeah,
3: um yeah, oh, I just I cat. thought it was it was completely engrossing, so yeah. thank you
2: oh my pleasure <laughs> um well um Coming up on this week's show, Margaret Drabble will join us to discuss Matthew Beaumont's new book, The Walker, on finding and losing yourself in the modern city, which is reviewed in this week's TLS, giving us in the process one of the most intriguing quotes I've read in quite a while. The most entertaining chapter in this volume, Drabble says, speaks of the magnificence and hideousness of big toes. More on that soon. But first, this year marks the centenary of the poet Paul Celan's birth and the, 50th aniva- and the 50th anniversary of his suicide by drowning in Paris. A number of significant English language books have been published to mark the occasion and here to talk us through them and discuss what they add to our picture of the man generally acknowledged as the most important post-war German language poet is Mark Glanville. Mark, hello, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Um, you have a rather nice story about discovering paul salen he was introduced to you in that that way that you you sort of can't dismiss i think with a sense of heartfelt urgency thrust at it by a trusted friend who thrust him upon you
4: yeah absolutely i was introduced to him at a time when i was sort of rediscovering my jewishness i was about to get married i never really had taken it particularly seriously and then but then I i got married to this jewish girl my Jewish Godfather, if there is can be such a thing, Stanley Moss is also a a very very fine poet in his own right and and publisher in New York. I went to stay with him uh, while I was actually doing some training as an opera singer. Funnily enough, at the time, but Stanley uh, had a, a formidable collection of poetry which I used to sort of enjoy looking through, and he used to talk me through some of the stuff as well. And I was particularly drawn. To uh Mandelstam, Mandelstam, of course the great Russian Jewish poet, and uh, paul salon, uh, another was Yehuda Amichai, the is the Israeli poet who uh, was a was a great personal friend also of, of Stanley Moss's, and in fact whom I, I got to know reasonably well over the years but Paul salon of everyone really just spoke to me the most he, he and the poem which I which i'll read actually in fact targets that, and salon. It seems Solon, in fact, defined Jewishness in his own terms, um, and it's included, in fact, in the poem I'm going to read as, as, a, as a pneuma, the Greek word for, for a wind, um, that it was a, it was a breath. It was something that you couldn't capture in the way that, that you can law, for example, in the, in the, Jewish, the Jewish liturgy. He he seemed to relate to his Jewishness in a way that, that that I did.
2: We were sort of we were going to save the poem for a a, a beautiful treat at the end, but I think now that you've introduced it so yeah. so eloquently, I think we should just I think we should have the poem. So if you'd like to if you'd like to tell us about Benedicta and, and then read it for
0: us,
4: yeah. So uh, Benedicta is included in uh, the volume of Memory Rose into Threshold Speech, which is this major collection of, of the first four of Salon's uh, poetry collections, which has been translated by, uh, by Pierre Joris. So I'm, I'm reading it in, uh, in English, but it starts actually with a quotation in Yiddish. So it's, aso sein." Drink, you did, what came to me from the fathers and from beyond the fathers. Numa. Blessed be you from afar, from beyond my extinguished finger. Blessed, you who greeted it, the tenebrae lamp. You who heard it as I closed my eyes, how the voice stopped singing after as muss as sein. You, you who said in the eyeless, the open fields, the same, the other word, be blessed, drunk, blessed, gebencht.
2: It always strikes me as such a brave and petrifying thing to do um, to publish, as Pierre uh, Joris has um, a bilingual edition uh, with the German and the English side by side for the for the critic to compare. Um, are you did you find yourself satisfied? Did, did you find yourself satisfied with this translation? Was it successful? I
4: think I think poetry is just always so incredibly problematic to to translate, of, of all the things one has to translate. It's, it's such a difficult task. And there's an interesting thing about Salon, which is that Salon was a, a poet who, in a funny way, was translating himself all the time. That He wasn't actually content, especially in the later poetry, with the language in which he felt he had to write. He called uh, German post-Holocaust German, a language gagged with the ashes of burned-out meaning. Wonderful expression. And it was the language of, of his mother. It literally was his mother's tongue. And it was the only language in which he could express himself, although he had written poems in Romanian. And being based in France, he had considered writing poetry in French. But he said he thought in German and he dreamed in German. He had to write in German. He came up with a German language that he sort of he forged for himself, using neologisms, uh, many of them out of compound words. Something which is quite easy to do in German, where a language full of compound words. He mined dictionaries for, and, and geological dictionaries, scientific dictionaries for obscure terminology. He went back to medieval German texts. He had to find his own way of expressing himself through the language. Of his parents, murderers, and his own oppressors,
2: which was, of course, really the, the sort of the struggle of his of his entire life. He has them. Um, he describes the the German language as a domain which just seems so uh, pertinent for a person whose whose life and whose parents and people were displaced, were were deported uh, from from a land. Um, it's incredibly moving. One of the um, one of the books that you mention, um, which is a collection of uh, of prose writings, um, I'm just looking for it now. It has it, it plucks as its title a line, which again sort of brings to the fore the the struggle that we're talking about here. It's called microliths; they are little stones. An incredibly moving title to choose for a collection, and and and, and this collection brings us insight that we didn't have before I don't think or perhaps just supplements it to how this um how how Ceylan struggled uh with with everything with with his personal life as well as his 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 uh his his career because of course the two things are completely imbricated
4: yeah I think Microliths is a, is a marvelous book I, I think it was originally published in German in 2005 and Pierre Joris uh, Joris has, has just, uh brought out this very important translation, very successfully translated. Um, there are issues. I, I didn't really fully answer that question or barely answered it about which I will come back to about, about the actual per, translation of the poetry itself, where there are issues and problems that, but partly, I think just because of the nature of the poetry that he has to translate. And then going back to the, uh, to the poem um, and the idea of, of Numa again, and this, and this breath there's this marvelous stuff uh, the final the final uh, paragraphs uh, are in fact uh, p- into interv- part of an interview with uh, yehuda Amachai, uh, only two fragments of which survive he goes back to this whole idea i'll see if i can find a reference to it but he talks about uh, a, oh yes here we are i actually got it here it was a 1969 interview Col israel with yehuda Amachai. Uh, and Salon says, obviously, the Jewish as a thematic aspect, but I believe that the thematic alone does not suffice in defining the Jewish. Jewishness is, to, so to say, a pneumatic matter. So he comes, there he is again referring to this in 1969. He also referred to it in his very important Meridian speech in which he defined his later poetics in 1960. Um, so this is a, this is, and then there's wonderful uh, sort of prose poetry, included in microlifts as well, just tremendous stuff. Interestingly, Pierre Jurister talks about Salon saying that he could have been another Kafka had he chosen to go down the route of a, of a prose writer. I have to say, I couldn't disagree more. I just do not see Salon as a prose writer at all. And in fact, if you look at the the, the high quality prose that's included in this book, it's very, very poetic. It's, it's poetic prose his muse was not the, the a prosaic muse, it was a poetic muse. It's a rather strange thing to say.
3: Um, I'm struck by you saying that, Mark, actually, because it, because as I was reading the piece, it, you get this very strong sense of someone, as we were saying before, is wrestling with the language, he's wrestling with the German language and with his own poetry, because as you say, the later style, he's trying to move away from the kind of beauty and lyricism, almost because he thinks that's not possible. Um, anymore but there's never a question of of stopping is there it's always a question of I I have to do this how do I do it
4: I I mean that's a I mean it's a very interesting observation and what happens is that in the in the second half of, of his poetic life should we say um it it, bec- it did become an existential struggle for him. In, in, you could argue that in, 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 there was a kind of epist. I think, as I say in the the piece, there's an epistemological aspect of the earlier work, as a search for a searching for knowledge, a search for reality, a try an attempt to make sense of it. And this wonderful phrase that he, that he comes up with, "Wirklichkeitswund uh, und um, I was wounded by reality and searching for reality. But when it comes to the second part of his of his career, it, it it's it becomes an existential endeavor, but it's it, he's, he calls it an, an eye clarifying itself in the process of writing that 's what poetry became to him, so that in order to to be able to, to cope at all he just simply had to write and it was all about that it was all about the necessity to write in order to simply to be able to to exist at all
2: and this this period of 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 transition from from one type of poetry um, to another, are we talking about a transition, um, a gradual transition, or are, are there a sort of a series of epiphanies of, of of chapters in in that movement?
4: Well, difficult one to be to be precise about. I mean, there's, a, there's something that I, I actually quote in the in the review of uh, the 1967 collection um, Artemvender, which is the, the breath turn and it's the which is really, in a way, that's I suppose, it, it. Really, I think you'd, you'd say it was the art and the breath turn that came with the Meridian speech. After which, there was a, there was this definite break. But before that, he's in the early, In, for example, in the in the in the uh, speech grill, um, sprachwiler poetry of the final volume of the of the new collection by Joris of the earlier poetry. He's definitely moving into this territory um, where it, it's. It's I forget the phrase he used. It was the 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 death of the synonym or whatever. There was metaphor was just no longer the, the poem words just there was this atomic aspect of poetry where in a way it couldn't be broken down. Uh you, you couldn't reduce things into metaphor. And uh with salon's later poetry, there's almost no choice. You 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 should you cannot finesse it, you have to. Translated exactly as it is in the German as, as closely as you can in the original. Also, I mean I'm, when, I, when I used to study Greek and Latin at, at, at Oxford or wherever we had the loeb editions, you know which would, would basically we're talking about literal translations. If you're translating salon, I think one should attempt to be as literal as possible. In the later poetry, I think it's a sine qua non. In the earlier poetry, I think it's preferable too, but it's but I can see how somebody could be tempted to write, to translate the earlier poetry in, in a way which is more poetic in an English sense, that when one's trying to push one's own poetic persona, when rather than just serving Ceylon himself.
2: It's interesting in light of all this to think of um, Ceylon as a translator himself, of course, he translated from a number of languages, um, he translated Shakespeare, Apollinaire, uh, Marianne Moore, Giuseppe Ungaretti. So, just to give a sense of the, the range there. But what do we know about him as a translator? What was his criteria? What did you know? What did he look for? And how did he handle other people's words?
4: Yeah, I mean, he. I think I mentioned in the in the piece that he he said that he only wanted to translate poetry that spoke to him. And and of course, then there's this wonderful book uh, which I've also also reviewed uh, under the dome by Jean Dave, Uh where salon chose to translate jean dev's first collection and he wanted to he wanted to translate it and it was it was a reciprocal thing going on because jean dev then also translated poems by salon uh, and and we had the and had the benefit of having salon sitting over his shoulder uh saying that this is how it should be and and there's a point in the review where i where i used that in a way to as a, not as a stick to beat uh, Joris with, but he has the advantage of of getting a closer translation, perhaps than than Juris might have done uh, with with his French. It, it's just it, it seems to me more authentically closer to what Ceylon wanted.
2: You um in in that um, in the book that you refer to there as well, um, which is an account of of, of the friendship between Jean d'Eve and, and Célon when they were in Paris. Um, you get some wonderful-sounding details, uh, just little glimpses of uh, the poet in movement. Uh, you mention um, that Dev observed Silan tearing up paper with extraordinary violence. His waste basket, uh, his waste basket always overflows with paper torn, but not crumpled into balls, as with others I know.
4: That's that's right. I mean, you say you, what you see there is is this this latent violence, but which wasn't always so latent. Um, particularly when it came to inflicting injury on himself, so there was an attempted suicide in 1967, of course tragically a successful one in 1970, but also a very violent attack on on his on his long suffering artist wife Gilles, Giselle Lestrange. Um He ne- he nearly killed her too. I remember when I when I actually uh, I was. He had been so much of a hero for me, Salon, for so many years. I was quite, I was very upset when I just not, I, I mean, I've known about this for a while, but I remember when I first discovered this, and I thought this wasn't the Salon that that I wanted to to celebrate, but it was who he was. And of course, then you, you get that reference uh, that those, those observations from Jean Derf, who was so obviously in awe of Salon and very sympathetic towards him, but extremely observant. It's a mar- It's a marvelous book, actually. Under the Dome, I think it's, it's a really terrific book and, and, and very, very moving. And he talks, I didn't mention it in the review, but he talks elsewhere about Salon's, this powerful spiritual presence. that you felt you were in the presence of somebody with this incredible spirituality. And I always see Salon, I've always seen Salon myself in as a kind of, in terms of as a prophet, you know, use the word, you know, vatic, from the Latin word vates for a prophet. He, he has that kind of to me, the great poets have a vatic quality and Salon undoubtedly had that. And, and it's interesting then to see jean daves observation that he had this spiritual presence because that seems to relate so well to this idea of him being this vate, this this prophet.
2: And for, for a poet who who underwent such a transformation in the way that he wrote, in the way that he conceived of uh, of words, um, there's a surprising um, circularity to his life. I suppose short, relatively short life, as as you said. Um, so the story of his of his suicide, the book left open on his desk, um, a, a, a book uh, of a biography of Holderlin, which takes us back to the beginning, his earliest influences. Almost, it just gives this tremendous circular circular sense.
4: It's absolutely true, and, and as, as I mentioned in the in the review, also that he, if you, this this poetry having this existential dimension to it, in the sense that it was a, it really was the means by which he was able to survive. Uh, this, as you say that there's a circularity there, going back to the, the sort of more surrealist poetry and uh, that he related to of, of, of the school of Andre Breton. And uh, and the an écriture automatique, you know, so automatic writing. I mean, in a way, where's the difference? It, 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 he's really come. He really has. He's really he has come full circle. It's quite extraordinary. So, it's, it's, and, and that's a n- n- nice thing to have mentioned that I hadn't really thought about that. But it's true that uh, the fact that it's hurdling, that's that's really he goes to for his final words.
3: And um, you said there is a there's a particular line. A sentence underscored, wasn't there, in that um, Hildelin.
4: That's right. Uh, yeah, this is it. Sometimes this genius goes dark and sinks down into the well of the heart. So that was the Hildelin sentence that he underscored. And uh, that was the last that we knew of him.
2: Well, um, it's, um, it's, it's hard to know what to say after that. It's such a... It's such a, it's such a um... It's such a, an intense story, both in terms of the life and and, and the poetry itself, um, obviously. But it's it's been a pleasure to talk to you about it today. Um, Mark Glanville, thank you. Thank you so much for your time.
4: My great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Still to come on the show, fantasy dinner parties for frustrated lockdown bibliophiles and Margaret Drabble takes us on a city walk in the company of HG Wells and GK Chesterton, among other urban ramblers.
0: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort.
2: Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Lenarduzzi and I'm with Lucy Dallas. This week's MB introduces an idea, a competition no less, to mitigate the lockdown blues. Have you seen this, Lucy?
3: I have seen it. It's not our competition, alas, is it? It's, it's um, not. It should be. <laughs> we should have thought of it ourselves. It's a good one. It's launched by the Book to, the book Collector, which is a website for book collectors and librarians and bibliophiles, it says. Um. Well, do you want to, do you want to um, explain their brilliant idea? Well, it's, so it's Fantasy Banquets for Bibliophiles. Um, it says, all
2: comers are hereby challenged to concoct their own fantasy banquets for bibliophiles. You're asked to describe in a thousand words an imaginary banquet for book lovers. Your characters can be alive, dead, or fictional from any period of any age, colour, or creed. Um, it says, no need to follow the rule of six, no need to bring your own bottle. Although I pers- I would find that the rule of six is actually quite a handy limiting factor because otherwise It probably
3: is because otherwise you'd say I'd like 200 people for dinner please
2: Exactly and you wouldn't get to talk to any any of them. The other thing that they don't specify in fact is is whether the inventor the host would actually be attending themselves because I don't think I would want to be there myself to, oh, to be wouldn't honest we? it sounds like well it sounds like a very extreme version of never meet your heroes <laughs> it could all go horribly wrong they could be really mean <laughs> i
3: suppose so it says i had to look on the on the website it says imagine you've got virginia Woolf chatting to jermaine greer or thomas jefferson to malcolm x maybe peter pan is sitting beside evelyn war what would they eat and drink might they wish to dance afterwards which is a nice thought has elizabeth bennett remembered her dancing shoes
2: well, you see there, I wouldn't want to interrupt any of those people. I would
3: just want to listen to them. And what if they started, what if you had prepared a careful menu for Evelyn Waugh and Malcolm X and Jermaine Gray and they all started moaning about the food or something? Anyway, well, God, see, cry. who would you I'd have? I'd <laughs> can, you, can you think of two or three off the top of your head?
2: Oh, gosh. Well, um, hmm. Um... Oh, it's the it's it's the multi channels debate. There's there's too much going on. I don't know where I know, to start. No, because you
3: because you could, you can have writers or fictional characters. Exactly. I reckon I think, I'd like go on.
2: No, I was just going to say I wonder whether they do they specify what that you, you do you have to tell them what what the food will be. Do you also is that a stipulation? To, no, to you could. I think
3: you just could do that if you wanted to.
2: Because I think I'd be better at that, especially if if we. <laughs> If we went, if we went back to previous episodes of the podcast, um, was it about a month ago we had Norma Clark on? We could, we could probably plunder that for, for menu ideas. You could have Mr. Mrs. Ramsey's buff on dub. You could serve oh, it with yes. James Joyce's hot flowery potatoes wrapped in a white napkin from Dubliners. See, I could yes. take care of that side and I'd be very okay. happy to delegate the invitees to you. All right, cool. Um, and then I'll just hang back in the corner and, and listen to everyone. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, I just, it's very difficult, isn't it? I would have one sort of ancient one. Mm. I don't know whether you would have Ovid or you might have Odysseus. You could have or... all of the Homers. You could have all of the people who go into being Homer. Oh no, they'd go on and on and on and on. Wouldn't they all the Homers? <laughs> don't you? That would be cool. You could have one Homer. I don't know. I'd have, it depends. One on representative when. of Homer. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Or maybe that's what I mean. Because you can have fictional characters, maybe you could have Odysseus. I think he'd be the best one of that lot in terms mm. of... He He's was,
2: intolerable though, isn't he?
3: <laughs> but he was he'd always be very telling annoying. stories. He was always singing for his supper,
2: you know? Mm. I'd probably or, invite Chaucer. I think he'd be a great one.
3: Yes, about storytelling. Um, be I very baldy. Orlando would be good fun. Virginia Woolf's Orlando. Mm. Uh, and, and could change gender mid-course if they felt like it. And that would, that would be cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, you could have you could have also, couldn't you, or the Wife of Bath? She'd be good fun. She'd be a right laugh. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe a bit much. <laughs> um, um, well, people who want to
2: uh, take part in this, what what do they need to do? I think they need to. I think they need to. Well, all the entry details are on the website of the book collector, but there is five hundred pounds at stake, mm. and because everyone's supposed to be submitting one thousand words on it, that's quite a lot actually. I wonder whether I wonder whether they'll publish them.
3: Somehow, or The Winner. I don't know. Because I'd quite
2: like to read it. So like would I.
3: But people can always, if they do enter, they can always tell us who their guests were. We'd be interested to know, That's wouldn't we? true.
2: And I'll ask NB to keep us posted, and then I can report back
3: Yeah. Uh, on good the idea. winning combination. That would be a great idea. Um, and after that great, enormous banquet, what you would need is to walk it off. Um, you would. And so if I were to ask, what brings together Big Toes, Knight's Errant, and The Invisible Man?, you might be at a loss to answer, unless, that is, you you've just read Matthew Beaumont's new book, The Walker, on finding and losing yourself in the modern city. We're lucky enough to have Margaret Drabble writing about this for us in the TLS this week, and doubly lucky that she's joined us today. Margaret, many thanks for talking to us. Thank you. Um, to begin with, I think um, I have the impression that you're quite a walker yourself, are you? I'm a very keen walker. I'm not a competitive walker, but I walk a
6: lot, both in the city and the country.
3: Yeah, because you mention in your piece, in fact, your own wanderings around North Kensington and Grenfell Tower. Not a happy walk, but a a significant, uh, meaningful one. uh, We can see
6: Grenfell Tower from our London house. We could see it burning. And to me, it was a very much a part of my life for months. I'm not there now. I'm in the country now, but... The tower is my walking patch and all those housing estates round
3: the bottom of it, I know quite well. I managed to get lost, but I know them well. Um, and Matthew Beaumont's book. So this is very specifically, you say between the, the country and the city, but so this book is very specifically about walking around the city, because he you mentioned that he wrote another one about walking at night, didn't he? And and it is, as you say, a very male dominated subject.
6: Yes, and I think he neglects one or two of the women walkers he could have put in, but he does point out quite reasonably that women in the city didn't find it as easy to walk as men do, they're always suspect, they're always looked at as the wrong kind of woman, so it is very much a male occupation, walking at night in the city, or even during the day, it's more of a male diversion, I think.
3: Yes. And, and I think he does also mention um, at some point that there's also the, the homeless people. There's a very unromantic side of being out in the city at night that, you know, the the, the person walking around taking things in is, is in a position of privilege, as it were.
6: Absolutely. I mean, it's OK if you're Dickens and have got somewhere to go home to, but it's not very good if you're on the street.
3: Yeah. Um, is it, would you say, is it in the tradition of the flaneur like Baudelaire and co, or is it a bit more modern like the psychogeographers and the situationists of the 60s who who wandered and got lost on purpose?
6: There's quite a lot of psychogeography in it. I mean, he, he quotes Baudelaire a lot. And of course, as I'm devoted to Baudelaire, I'm always happy to come across Baudelaire. He quotes T.S. Eliot frequently, particularly that bit about crossing London Bridge. And he uses the word commuter, which I don't think was invented then for the for the bank clerks going to work. So he he invokes the sort of the city walker. But then there is a sort of shadow of homelessness, tramps, vagabonds. Um, and in the Middle Ages, if you were walking around at night, you were um, illegal. So you were under a curfew. So
2: all, all that is drawn in. Mm-hmm. And so is, is his focus very much on how walking the city shaped the minds and the work of, of, of selected writers that he discusses?
6: Yes, it is. There, there, there's a lot about um, how certain, how imagery comes into one's mind. Also, some of these writers, that he makes quite clear, used to walk in order to think. I mean, words within the country walked in order to think. But here we have um, G.K. Chesterton, and, and Dickens walking the city streets in order to think, walking at night in order to think. And all that comes across very strongly. Their, their books are shaped by their
2: walks. Their characters are shaped by their walks. And so Virginia Woolf is one of the, the rare uh, female appearances in his work. Yes, but I thought it was quite interesting that Mrs.
6: Galloway, about which she writes quite a lot, she doesn't really focus on Mrs. Galloway at all, but on um, the chap back from the war um, who is pursuing a woman through um, central London. She's wearing a smart hat, I think, and, and she never looks back at him, but it's a kind of, it's a pursuit. and it, I mean, he calls him Pete the Ripper, and it's interesting that this was the very week that... Um, Mm. that Peter Sutcliffe died and there are so many resonances in in this book things that hook on to other things that are happening at the same time and of course Peter Sutcliffe terrorized the whole of Yorkshire that people didn't dare go out.
3: Yes and actually it had a huge effect on on uh, women walking on their own and also men walking on their own because because most of the men were horrified if they found themselves walking behind women and would have to try and cross the street or you yes. know. No,
6: they, they they felt um they felt suspect simply by being there. No, yeah. it, it's it's very interesting that aspect of of danger and outlaw, of being an outlaw. But Virginia Woolf herself was a very bold walker. She was quite a brave person, and she didn't mind striding around on her own, um,
2: day or day or evening. Mm, she said to walk alone in London is the greatest rest. It was it was for her. It was a real escape, wasn't it?
6: Well, it is a a wonderful treat, and I wish I could do it now, because although I love walking in the country, I do love walking in London. And one of the things I love doing is getting on a bus with my Freedom Pass and going to somewhere I don't know, and then just getting off and going for a walk. And, of course, that now is no longer such a safe activity as it used to be. I was interested that... um, Matthew Beaumont doesn't mention the Reclaim the Night movement and he did write a previous book about night walking and I wondered if he mentioned it there but I couldn't get hold of a copy because there's no libraries anywhere and I I bought a sample and read the intro but I don't think he mentions the Reclaim the Night movement there and I remember having huge arguments with my niece about that and about whether it was um,
3: wise to go around in very short skirts in um, London But I mean that was part of the point of reclaim the night wasn't it was that that where you're allowed to walk you know we were allowed to walk around at night that was okay
6: that was exactly what she was arguing and I was saying But common sense tells you that there are some places where you're asking for trouble she absolutely wouldn't see that though I think now she's a little older she might see that I might have had a point that I was worried about
3: Mm, sure (laughs) um in terms of resonances you also say at the beginning that it, it opens with um deserted cityscapes of um of De Chirico and also the Ray Bradbury story, The Pedestrian, which is also about uh, uh, an eerily empty city.
6: That is a very powerful story and it reminds me of many occasions in America, many occasions in America where I've been walking in New York or Los Angeles and realised I'm not meant to be walking at all. You're just not meant to walk. I know lots of stories of people who have um, been for a walk and been positively sort of arrested for walking along a sidewalk.
2: <laughs> I'm laughing because it's true. I've had so many of those experiences where you're walking in, in LA and people just look at you like you're nuts. Why aren't
3: you in a car?
2: <laughs> yeah, what are you doing? Where are
6: you going? It, it is... Well, that that story is very is prophetic because when he wrote it in the nineteen fifties, it hadn't got as bad as it has now. When motorcars are the only means of transport in in some parts, so there is no
3: sidewalk. Um, and you say that uh, Matthew Belmont, is a he's a big fan of 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 modernism, but in fact he sheds a lot of light on on some Victorian and Edwardian classics, such as the Invisible Man. What what's his reading of um, that story?
6: Well, it's very interesting. He sees the Invisible Man who, as we all know, because we have all know the story, was a, a scientist who invented a way of becoming invisible and then discovered it had great inconveniences, like you, you couldn't get any food and you couldn't fight. You, you had to wrap yourself up in clothes in order to be um, seen and therefore fed. And um, it's a very macabre story. And at the end, um, he, um, Beaumont points out that the, um, the invisible man becomes... It, from having been a very um, self-important, unpleasant character, becomes a sacrificial Christ-like victim, naked and, and torn to pieces by the mob. Um, like a sort of scapegoat figure. And I hadn't quite seen it in those grandiose terms. I've just seen it as a scary story. But it is, it, he's absolutely right. There's a wonderful bit where he compares the invisible man whose head is all bound up in bandages and that his, his mouth, there is no mouth. And the landlady comes in and she just sees this huge space where his mouth is meant to be. And Beaumont compares that to Monk's um, the, the Scream, which I think is brilliant, this huge open black mouth screaming. It, it, it's full of perceptions like that, which are really very enlightening.
2: Mm-hmm. And he, He's very good on etymology as well, isn't he? I like the excavation of the word errant.
6: He's very funny about words. I mean, I sometimes wonder whether he's having us on because like Joyce, he just loves a pun or a play on words. But the thing about errant is just really, really interesting. Um, I never knew that. It's a sort of slightly, it's a sort of slightly misleading etymology. And the, the thing about haunting and home, I had no idea that the words haunting and home had any connection at all. They almost seemed the reverse of each other, but they do have, according to him, an etymological root. So he's, he's very interested. And the big toes, which which you mentioned earlier, that section about big toes is very, very funny. All the kind of wordplay he manages to get out of our toes is et-
3: Well, that's what we wanted to ask you. What, What does he tell us about the importance of the big toe? Why is it so important?
6: Well, without it, we wouldn't be able to walk. I mean, he goes into the whole history of bipedalism and how the human being got up on its hind legs and walked. And uh, what a huge difference this has made to um, humanity and culture and and our and our way of living, which of course is all true. Um, and he cites various scientific authorities on on. Bipedalism and, and how we first climbed trees and the savannah and began to learn to walk on two feet. But the important thing is the big toe. And I mean, my big toes by now are completely horrible, so I didn't like to be made to think about them too much. They're, they're really, <laughs> truly hideous now. But he does say we must look at our big toes bravely and learn to confront them. And he's quite right. There's a very wonderful photograph of a big toe as well i mean he got all that this from um a philosophical surrealist treatise but the the stuff about toes is just very very um it's delightful it's crazy and it's just extremely
2: enjoyable i was i was going to say i was going to say you mentioned surrealism there but just um talking about big toes, it very much made me think of, um, you know, that scene in L'Age d'Or with, um, by Buñuel and Dali, where the woman is seen sucking the toe of the religious statue. I hadn't thought of that, but I, that's exactly it. And he makes
6: you, it makes you long to go to an art gallery and look at the big toes of the saints because he's very, he's very good on the big toes. And I know that in the Ashmolean, there's a wonderful painting. I always forget who it's by. It's by some minor <laughs> but very important Italian artist. Called, it's of Saint Helena, who was the mother of, of Constantine, I think. And she's got the most magnificent sandals and she must have some wonderful toes. So I'm looking forward very much to being able to get back to the Ashmolean one day and have a look at her toes.
2: <laughs> we'll have 3000 words on that please, Margaret
3: first thing to do after lockdown <laughs> well i i'd love to be able to go and when you say also that he his his yeah. fondness for puns he's got this extraordinary one um where he ends up I is this right that he ends the chapter talking about somebody calling for the dictatorship of the tola prairie at do you think the whole chapter is just for that pun <laughs>
6: I couldn't pronounce it even in my head, you did it beautifully. <laughs> but but that that is based on his analysis of the first scene of Coriolanus, which I'd always um been very interested in. It's where Menonius addresses the, the 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 rabble of the citizens, and he calls the first citizens, he addresses him as you the big toe of this assembly. And I always found that very funny, and, and so does, does Beaumont. So it is, it's he's waiting for this for this um very anti-capitalist joke to come up the can you say it again? I can't pronounce it even in my head.
3: Tola prairieot.
6: Tola Prairiat, That's right.
3: Yes. I think so. Yeah, it's on. No, no, yeah,
6: I, I think that's right. I think that's right. No, he was he was working his way towards it, magnificently.
3: <laughs> and um, can you tell us as well that you you talk about the idea of the industrial sublime, which is clearly something that you have been thinking about for quite a while. I have. I have. I am. Um, I wrote this book called A Writer's
6: Britain, which was really to accompany the, the photographs of, of Jorge Lewinsky. And he got some wonderful photographs of, of um, um, clay pits and slate pits and cooling towers. And I found it very hard to get texts to go with some of them because there weren't so many texts as there were about the Lake District. And I thought this category is must be the industrial sublime. But I think the phrase hadn't been coined then, it didn't really exist. I don't think I used it. I kind of hinted towards it. Could I say also that I've just finished today reading? I don't know how to pronounce this either. But Shugy Bain shortlisted. Oh, Shugy Bain. Yeah, Bain. the booker. That has got some magnificent industrial sublime landscapes of Glasgow. I mean, I think the most powerful thing in, in that
3: book, which is a very powerful book, are, are the industrial landscapes. They're really superb. Um, and and so you found that it was an it was it was a phrase that you. Uh, kind of you needed at the time and later found as it were is that and it's a phrase yes that use, is it well I, I don't know who first used it I really don't know who first used it
6: and I, I thought it was me but when I looked back at the original text of my book um it's not there but it is there in the afterword of the reprint but by then it had been introduced by somebody else and it's rather um, annoying not to be able to find out where it was first used. It is used quite frequently now in art history and in exhibitions and, um, ca- and catalogues. But I don't know when it actually begins. The, the, there's another word that, um, that Beaumont invokes, which is edgelands which is that sort of bit around the city, which is neither town nor country. And I think we do know exactly when that was coined, uh, which was later than the period I'm talking about. And that was very, um, very attractive to the psycho um, geographers. Yes. And
3: that
6: was,
2: that was Marion shored wasn't yes. it? Yes. So and, and nice to have another woman in a very male book. Another <laughs> woman. And there were several poets who, who, who took up um, in a big way the Edgelands theme. Oh, yes. Michael Simmons Roberts and um, Paul Farley, about 10 yeah. years ago, they had that lovely collection, yeah. a shared collection of poems. Um, I think it was, in fact, called Edgeland. Yes, it was. Yes. Um, yeah. In a way, I wonder if, if the Edgeland isn't actually the place to, to be looking for today's Virginia wolves or, wolves, <laughs> Virginia wolves or HG Wells's. I mean, not many writers, I suppose, these days can afford to live in central London. So I expect you might find them stalking Walthamstow marshes. Uh, more than bloomsbury these days i imagine a, there are quite a lot lot of them walking there um yes
6: through
3: through the eastern the eastern marches of london and Finally, um, we know what the uh, the first uh, our first mission as soon as we're out of lockdown is to run towards the Ashmolean and look at the toes <laughs> of the mother. Of, I can't <laughs> so, wait. So we look at Saint Helena, but when we are um, allowed to roam as much as we please, where where do you think your ideal walk would be?
6: Um, you're looking for a city walk rather than a country walk, I think, because that that's
3: what the book is about. I guess I am because that's the theme. But you could you could always. You could always disobey me and say whatever you want.
6: Well, there are parts of London I'm so fond of. I mean, I don't really like West London where I now live, um, or when I'm there, I do. But I've got to know it so well in a in a kind of sorrowful way that I do quite like walking under the Westway, under the motorway through the through the those housing estates. Um, there are many walks around there that no one could call them beautiful, but they're full of. Um, of human um, interest, of architectural oddities. Um, So so I I think I I will be happy to get back to walk through some of those familiar patches again. Mm
3: -hmm. Well, that sounds like the industrial sublime to me as well in some ways, is it? It is, with those huge towers, but then crouching at the bottom of the towers you will find
6: little Victorian terraces um, that haven't been bombed. So much of that area was bombed, and so there there were these huge towers like Grenfell, but there were little corners of Victoriana, uh, and then there's the Westway, which in itself is the industrial sublime, but Mm. the Edgelands are underneath it. So, a bit of everything.
3: Think of everyone. yeah well um thank you very much and let's let's hope you you um are able to do that walk soon thank you very much for joining us thank you it's been nice to talk to thank you thank you margaret
2: thank you Here's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Margaret Drabble and Mark Glanville. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye.